2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians there in the New Testament, follows 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text today will be verses 11 through 21. We are continuing this morning a series that we are calling Together, just trying to consider various ideas from the scripture about what it means to be a church together and the calling we've been given, the responsibilities that we have and that we share. So far we've considered our unity, our calling to maintain unity as Christians, as a church. Last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through scripture and helping us understand how we are called to grow and mature as Christians in the context in which that takes place is the church and how we do that together and how as a, as a, as a people that we have some responsibility to each other in that even. So this common thread through that sermon on unity and the sermon on growth last week, this common thread is that we see the context where that takes place is the context of Christian community i.e. the local church. And today we're going to continue that focus as we consider our stewardship and calling that we have together as Christians in reaching others with the gospel and how we're called to do that together. So with that in mind, I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. These are the words the Apostle Paul wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth. Verse 11, we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that, the one, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we've just shared and expressed through song, would you plant it deep within us today that we may see Christ, that we may trust Christ, that we may follow Christ. Feed us, Lord, and help us that we may honor you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
thinking back over the past few weeks about unity and growth, one of the impacts that our unity and growth as Christians have together is how that unity and that growth impacts the world around us. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed. We call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But he's praying in John 17 for believers. He's praying for his disciples, then he's praying for all the disciples that would trust in him throughout history. It's this long prayer that Jesus prays, and right there in the middle of that prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus says this, he's praying, and as he prays, he says, I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. There's the unity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And here's the reason he gives for that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying for unity in John 17. It's a big prayer on unity, but the implication behind that prayer is that the reason he's praying for unity is because he knows that in the unity of God's people, the world is going to be impacted as the world looks at our unity and hears the unified message we proclaim to it. There is an evangelistic thrust. There's an evangelistic impact that takes place when God's people are unified and growing together in Christ. And it's that evangelistic impact that I want us to think about this morning. This idea of being an independent believer, living in isolation from a community of others is foreign to the Bible. Even in Jesus' prayer here, prayer for unity, we find that picture of togetherness. And one of the purposes of that unity is so that the world may believe in Jesus. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for those who would believe through their word and that those who believe would be one so that the world could believe. It's important that we hear that this morning. One of the reasons we're to be unified as God's people is because it has an evangelistic impact on the world around us. Now, when I say that, the world will not be saved merely by looking at our unity. The world doesn't say, oh, look at that. There's a unified people. I'm converted. That's not how it works. The world will be, be the world, other people, will be saved by believing the unified message we proclaim that has unified us together in Christ. That's exactly what I want us to think through this morning. As we consider our call to togetherness, I want us to think through the gospel witness that we've been called to give ourselves to as a unified and growing people. And that's where 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, I think, are instructive for us this morning. Right here in Paul's second letter, it's actually, depending on who you talk to, third or fourth letter, one or two of them we don't have, but one first and 2 Corinthians are here. Here in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we see this stewardship we've been given as God's people together. 
Paul's writing to a church. If you read 1 Corinthians, a church that had many struggles, but a church nonetheless. He's writing to a church that had been formed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to encourage these believers to persevere in that gospel. Now again, as we saw, as, we, as you can go back and read 1 Corinthians, the church had many, many issues that needed to be addressed. That was Paul's purpose for writing. One of the many problems that they had was that a vocal minority had rejected Paul's apostolic authority. They were basically saying, Paul's a fraud. Don't listen to him. And so Paul, with all everything else going on in Corinth, he's having to address that issue on top of the church being all messed up. So he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, in part as a defense of his apostolic ministry. He's defending his ministry and his calling as an apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's in the midst of that defense of his ministry, as he seeks to correct these detractors, that he's also encouraging the church, the true believers, in ongoing faithful gospel ministry. And it's in that defense and encouragement that we see Paul encourage us as disciples, as followers of Jesus in our responsibility and stewardship. Really, it's in this defense of Paul's ministry that we see the overarching point of his ministry and the calling that he lived his life, he gave his life to pursue, making Christ known. He understood that apostolic calling as, a, as being a witness and an ambassador for Christ. And he would go on his various missionary journeys and, and preach Christ and encourage the church as it would form. As we think about this text this morning, brothers and sisters, I think the, the main point I want us to see from this passage is this, is that believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, Christians, both individually and corporately, have a stewardship to be ambassadors for Jesus. Believers, individually and corporately, have a stewardship as, 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 as being ambassadors for Jesus. Acts 1.8, being witnesses. 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors, reconcilers, ministry of reconciliation. And here's exactly what I want us to walk through in this text this morning. As we look at Paul's calling and his stewardship, we know that he had a unique calling as an apostle. He was called to be an apostle with a capital A. We, we don't have apostles capital A today. So our ministry will look different as far as our calling goes, but the, the point is the same. The, the end goal is the same, and I think we can learn several aspects about our stewardship as ambassadors for Jesus today as we look here in Paul's own life and ministry. And I want us to see three aspects of this stewardship that we share together with regards to advancing the gospel. Number one, the first thing that we share together as Christians is that we share a compelling motivation for reaching others with the good news of Jesus. We share a compelling motivation. And you see that really in the verses 11 through 15 as Paul's teasing that out a little bit. Really to gain a fuller picture of Paul's motivation in his ministry, we could go back to verse 10. I didn't read that. 
But if you back up a verse in chapter five, verse 10, Paul's been talking there and he, and, he, and he says this, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's talking to the church. He's saying all of us Christians are gonna stand before God one day and give account for what we do, the stewardship that we have as, as, as Christians in the world. And then that leads him to verse 11, where he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing I'm going to stand before God one day, verse 10, and give account of the stewardship of my life to, to Jesus, knowing that we persuade others. Do you see that motivation? The motivation of fearing God, knowing there is future judgment that awaits all of us, and that we give account of our lives in that judgment. That means then that we have not been saved to a life of aimlessness or indifference, but to one of active service. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that motive, that motivation, we persuade others. This first motivating factor that spurs Paul into a ministry of gospel persuasion is this fact of future judgment. Future judgment that awaits him, future judgment that awaits others. He knows that he's gonna give an accounting of his ministry, of his life to the Lord, and he wanted to make sure that he stewarded that calling faithfully. So this fear of the Lord compelled him forward in gospel ministry. Now he goes on in verses 12 and 13 and following to, to qualify a bit what he means, because again, remember the vocal minority in Corinth, there were some that were basically calling Paul a fraud some had been very critical of his ministry and rejected him as an apostle. As such, in verses 12 through 13, we see he's reassuring them here that he's not commending himself. He's not there to persuade people to follow him. His ministry is based on something much greater. He's not the point of his ministry. Christ is. And so he's seeking to reassure them of that here. And that leads us right into the second motivation that we see, we pick up there in verse 14. He goes on and says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So you see there in verse 11, Paul says, the first motive I have for my ministry is the fear of the Lord. I'm gonna stand in judgment one day. Second motivation is that the love of Christ controls me, compels me, constrains me. Various translations have. So here are these two motives that stood behind Paul's apostolic evangelistic activity as an ambassador, as a minister of reconciliation, the two motives that fueled him forward was the fear of the Lord and the love of Jesus. And I think that those two motives would be motives that we would do well to consider in our own hearts and lives. Listen, when we think about outreach or evangelism, it can often be an intimidating and challenging thing. Many struggle with evangelistic opportunities for a variety of different reasons. 
Many are fearful of rejection or not having good answers to hard questions. Some are just simply not even thinking about it. They don't ever think about it. But listen, if we're going to be faithful stewards as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation in the world, then we need to have the proper motivation fueling us forward. Listen, guilt-tripping Christians into sharing their faith is just a bad idea. I, I think I've shared this before. I, I remember one of my professors in seminary, great guy, I liked most of what he said, but I remember him saying one day in class, if you're not sharing the gospel every day, you're in sin. That didn't leave me motivated to go to evangelism that day. Like, I felt like ashamed, like every day. You're in sin if you're not sharing the gospel. I was like, well, I think that's maybe stepping a bit far. So that, that guilt trip doesn't work. Like we need to be rightly, biblically informed and motivated to share Christ. I want you to think about your own participation in evangelism. And you may think, well, there's not much to think about. Or you may think, okay, I've got plenty of examples. So wherever you are, I want you to think about your own participation in evangelism. Some of us in this room, as a Christian, have never shared the gospel, ever. Maybe you've invited people to church, but you've never explained how a person can be saved and asked people to put their faith in Jesus. I don't know who you are, but I'm sure, in a room this size with this many people, some of you have never done that for a variety of different reasons. You've just never been maybe trained, encouraged, helped, assisted, whatever. Others of us do so, but we do so very infrequently. The question is why? Why would some in this room never have shared the gospel and why would others do so, but do so very infrequently? Again, there are a number of reasons. I think some of the big ones though could be fear. For others, um, feeling ill-equipped. Others, stage of life, you, you just, you're doing the best you can to hold the family together with all the kids. For some, we assume that's for somebody else. I'm just a normal Christian, right? Evangelism is for the super extra credit Christians, right? No, friend, it's, it's for all of us. Some of us maybe have tried it and we've just been shut down and discouraged. Others are, are motivated, but they're motivated maybe for the wrong reasons. Maybe pride is a motive. Look at me, another notch in my belt. Brothers and sisters, whatever it is that hinders you from seeking to persuade others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's the fear of man, whether it's a sense of not being equipped, whether it's just you never think about it, whatever that reason is, let me just encourage all of us that whether you're poorly motivated or not motivated at all, let's just bring that to the Lord today and just ask him to, to shift our hearts and our thinking and in our motives. Consider these two motives that compelled Paul, the fear of judgment and the love of Jesus. He knew he was gonna stand before God and he just couldn't get over the fact that amazing love, how could it be, right? And he couldn't get over the fact that Jesus would actually love him. He called himself the chief of sinners. 
Like he never got over that. And that just compelled him, motivated him in his calling as an apostle. Brothers and sisters, maybe all we need this morning is in our feeble or non-existent efforts in evangelism, myself included, maybe all we need is just to be reoriented this morning to the reality of our stewardship and answering to the Lord in judgment and to be reminded yet again of how gracious and loving God is towards sinners. And when that captivates us, the right and proper motive for pointing others to the same thing that we enjoy and know. These are compelling motivations that will lead to an enduring witness, no matter how challenging or difficult it could be in this world. So we need to share the right motives, a compelling motivation, right? We need to be rightly motivated to share Christ. You have the wrong motives or you have no motives, then then you're not going to share Christ. We need to be rightly motivated, meditating on these truths. Number two, not only should we share a compelling motivation, we need to share an entrusted ministry. And you see in verses 16 through 19 where we see this, this focus. Flowing from what Paul just stated about the love of Christ, controlling him, Remember, he's concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Jesus demonstrated in his death as he died for those who would believe. And he died that those who live might no longer live for themselves. You see that in verse 15, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So their lives are transformed because they see the love of Jesus impacting them. And now that's changing them. But now we see, he goes on to explain the type of ministry that he and others enjoy because of that love that we see earlier. Notice a few things about the nature of their ministry. First of all, it established for them a new outlook. Look at verses 16 and 17. So he's, again, follow his argument here. He's talking about the motive, fear of judgment earlier, Devenza's ministry, I'm not here about me, I'm here about Jesus. In verse 14, in fact, it's the love of Christ that controls me. So Jesus is, is my motive. And then verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. From the point of considering Christ's great demonstration of love on the cross, Paul's whole perspective about people changed. Even his view of Christ, he said, he, we even used to regard Christ according to flesh, but we do that no longer. Our view of humanity has changed because of what the gospel does. He no longer regarded people according to the flesh. He didn't see people through worldly eyes. This could have been a temptation in Paul's day, a Greek culture. But he's recognizing the gospel changed that. He no longer viewed people according to their place in society or through sexist or racist or other superficial lenses. He saw them in a new light. Why? Because of the controlling, compelling love of Christ. This is huge because it really shapes how we go about our ministry. If we have the motives in the right place, then we need to understand the nature of our ministry and the shape of our ministry and what that does. It helps us see people through gospel lenses, not worldly lenses. It helps shape how we go about our ministry. Listen, whether you want to admit it or not, 
All of us in this room size people up based on outward appearances or worldly categories. Sociologists call it implicit bias, whatever you want to call it, we all do it. You size people up, you make categorical assessments in your brain about people based upon a number of factors. I remember just a few years ago when a group of us went to southern France to do some literature distribution among mostly Muslim people. And I remember doing that in a context where many of these Muslim peoples from northern Africa were dressed head to toe in their Muslim dress. And because of being inoculated in a Western mindset and kind of categorized, people categorizing through, you know, I, I, would, I would be intimidated by that. I would just make a quick assessment and immediately be like, I don't know if I can do this. But yet when I would engage these people in conversation, I would find many times that they were very warm and willing to engage in spiritual conversation and find that, oh, this is not so bad of a thing after all. It was my stereotype, my, my, my tendency to, to size someone up based upon appearance and wonder if I was making judgments according to the flesh. But Paul's saying the gospel changes that. He says the gospel gives him a new set of lenses. He no longer sized people up based on worldly categories, but in gospel categories. That's what the gospel does. It helps us have a new outlook. It helps us to see people first and foremost as image bearers full of value and dignity, no matter where they come from, who they are. Yet these very same people, just like us, are fallen and separated from God. And the gospel not only helps us see that, it helps us realize what they can become in Jesus. How they can be forgiven and reconciled. And that's what Paul's saying here. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The gospel can change them. I no longer view people on what they are. I see what they, what they can become in Christ. And for that, that changes how we go about our ministry. As we're rightly motivated, we begin to see with clear eyes. And so we seek to reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives with the good news, with a new perspective, a new outlook. But not only does it establish a new outlook, it establishes a new priority. Look at verses 18 and 19. As he concludes there, how the gospel makes people a new creation, the oldest past, the new has come. He says, all this is from God. And this isn't Paul's plan. This isn't Paul's gig. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So what Paul understood is that God saves us, God saves any sinner through the reconciling work of Jesus. It was finished on that cross. We sang that song this morning. That's how you get reconciled to God. Through the finished work of Jesus, by putting your hope and faith in Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead and coming again. But when you are saved, when you are reconciled to God and you become a Christian, 
He gives you and I something more than simply eternal life. He gives us that. He gives us the hope of heaven. He forgives us of our sins. But listen, he also gives us a ministry together, responsibility, a stewardship. And Paul talks about it here in terms of the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry of reconciliation was what Paul understood his calling it to be as an apostle to the Gentiles. Again, we're, we're not sharing the same title as Paul today, but yet we have the same witness. We have the same calling as ambassadors in this world to take part in this ministry of reconciliation. Listen, when you think about ministry of reconciliation, what I'm meaning by that is, is specifically evangelism, our, our responsibility, our stewardship as Christians in this world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, as the son of God, and then what he did. When he, come and, when he came and he lived a life of perfection, he obeyed the law perfectly, he died on the cross for sin, he was dead, buried, and he was raised on the third day to show his power and victory over sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's promised to come again. This entire work of redemption is what we know as the ministry of reconciliation. Now we're stewards to tell the world about that. Now, when, we, when we're called to this, this, this idea of being an ambassador, to being a witness, to being ministers of reconciliation, that's going to look different for us all. It's just going to look different for all of us. Some of us, that means you're going to be called into full-time vocational ministry and you're going to spend your life engaging in this kind of work. Others have what's called the gift of evangelism. Like you are just spiritually gifted by the Holy Spirit to be an evangelist. Like that's just what the, what, that's how God's wired you. Others will take part in some form of church planting work or missions work. And yet others are simply called to just ordinary gospel faithfulness. And I would say the majority. Ordinary gospel faithfulness. Now we're kind of a baseball, softball family. So I was thinking about just a variety of different ways people are called to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, the ways that God calls us and, and wires us into being evangelists or being witnesses, being ambassadors for Christ. And I was thinking about just this imagery of baseball and, and how you know we get excited when, when the big sluggers get up, usually the, the third, fourth, fifth batter, you know, usually the, the kind of beefier guys or gals that, that can just, they can hit like a home run, they can knock it over the fence and, and it's not a big deal for them. There are others on the team that they've never hit a home run. They've never been able to, to slug the, the ball and, and see that go. We get excited when we see those, right? Go to a ball game and somebody hits a home run. It's a big deal, everybody gets excited. But most of the runs in a baseball game are not typically scored by the sluggers hitting the home runs. Most runs are scored by base hits. Ordinary people getting up and making clean, Singles, doubles, ordinary base hits. And that's where many of us live. We're, we're not the ones that are going to be constantly, constantly knocking the ball over the fence and, 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 and just always doing, seeing people come to Christ in, in, in droves. Many of us are just going to be called to ordinary gospel faithfulness. Another base hit. Another opportunity to, to advance the runners. That's the beautiful thing about being in this work together. We all bring different gifts. We all bring different strengths and opportunities to the table. 
I get concerned when I hear Christians say, well, you're not really doing evangelism if you're not doing it this way. Brothers and sisters, we all have a different, different, different uh, ways that God has brought us together and through our gifts and strengths and, and context and connections. We need to recognize that and give ourselves to it. I'm encouraged by, based on what I see here at Redeeming Grace. We, we have a long way. I think when people ask strengths and weaknesses about our church. I always say weakness, we could be better at evangelism every time. First one out of the box. But most pastors say that. I'm not just picking on us. But I am encouraged. I, I think about what's, what I've seen here, groups that are currently going out monthly to do evangelism out in the community. In fact, Stu, guy that read the scripture, it's got the nice hair. You know, he, he, he's going to be leading an, an evangelism training coming up in a few weeks on a, on a date. Stu, what's the date? 28th of May. So if you're interested in learning how to do that with that group, go out in the community, do that. I know of one couple that's been hosting and meeting with several Mormons over the course of a month or so now, engaging in conversation, evangelistic conversation. I hear stories of conversations some of you are having with coworkers, some of which have been going on for months, if not years. Some I know in this room have hosted meals with a deliberate effort to get to know your neighbor so you can share the gospel with them. Others of you are just merely being faithful evangelists to your children. Some of you, stages of life change a lot of things for us. And, and I know sometimes we can feel guilty, like, well, I'm not, I'm not able to go to that evangelism training. I'm not able to go do this. I'm just doing good to, to like, keep my kids fed and diapers changed. Well, praise God, you've got a, a captive audience right there. Invest in them with the gospel. That's evangelism. You don't have to, like, go out of your home to do evangelism. It's right there. Others are serving in a variety of different ways, whether it's campus ministry. I know we have a group that serves weekly at Carver Elementary with the Good News Club, sharing the gospel with children. On and on we could go. Different ways, different strengths, different gifts of people joining together to see Christ advanced in this community and beyond. There is no one way of being faithful in evangelism. There's one message there's one gospel, there's one savior, but many different approaches that we can take. So we want to establish a culture of evangelism within this church, a culture of being ministers of reconciliation, being ambassadors for Christ, knowing that we've been entrusted. Notice verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We sing about that. We talk about, praise God, he saved me from my sins, right? We rejoice in that. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We'll sing about that all day, won't we? Praise God, he no longer holds my sin against me. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, the message of reconciliation. So we want to be a culture where evangelism is normal. It's normal to bring friends here that are exploring Christianity. 
Like we ought to be a place where it's just normal for non-Christians to come here because they're trying to figure out what we believe and we like welcome that. We don't look at them like they're weird for being here. Like it just should be normal for unbelievers to come here and, and want to learn more about Christ and we should like, like welcome them and say yes. We ought to be a place where the gospel is often discussed and taught where it's preached, where it's sung, where, where, we, where, we, where it's just normal, where, where when you do bring, bring an unbelieving friend or, 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 or someone that you know that's not a Christian, where you know at some point they're going to hear the gospel. You're trying to, to share that with them, but you know in a corporate gathering like this, you, they're going to hear it. Where prayer requests in home groups, just think about those of you who are in small groups this past week, how much of your prayer time was spent praying for lost people? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you didn't. But like that ought to be, I'm not saying it has to be weekly, but it ought to be like a normal part of our prayer times together. Or if you're meeting with other Christians, like how often are you saying, hey, pray for so-and-so. I'm trying to, 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 to share Jesus with them. On and on we could go. We've been entrusted with this ministry, which gives us a new sense of priority, Right? takes all kinds of people with all kinds of approaches, but we have the same gospel and that's what we want to be stewards of. So friends, pray for and encourage each other in this work. And if you struggle and if you, if you have a hard time with this, don't feel guilty. Like just ask for prayer, ask for help. This is not a sermon to, like if you leave here feeling guilty because you don't evangelize, like you've missed the whole point. I'm not trying a bit to make you feel guilty. If the Lord's convicting you, that's different. But like, my goal is here to encourage us. We share an entrusted ministry. But then lastly, we see that we share a reconciling message. We know that we've been given motives. We know that we've been entrusted with this ministry, but what is the context or the content of this ministry? It's this reconciling message that we see, verses 19 through 21. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's the big picture of the Bible. God reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We need to understand that the ministry of reconciliation has attached to it a message of re reconciliation. And he gives us kind of a summary of that message in verse 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ in this world. God making his appeal through us. That is the me method by which God reconciles the world. God makes his appeal through the message of reconciliation, through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. That's our responsibility, that's our stewardship, to tell the world, be reconciled to God. Because God is reconciling the world to himself. You say, well, what, how does that happen? Well, that comes through the message, which is kind of encapsulated for us in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Christ, 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the, the gospel kind of in a nutshell right there, isn't it? This message that we proclaim is a message to the world, be reconciled to God through Christ who made him, who God made him, Jesus, to be sin, meaning he entered the world as a man, he walked to this planet as a man, and yet he took upon himself the judgment and condemnation for our sin. He didn't die on a cross for, to, to bear the punishment for his own sin. He died on a cross as a perfect man to bear the punishment and judgment for our sin. So that our sins could be forgiven and pardoned so that we could be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? He didn't sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God that we might be seen as righteous before a holy God. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's the message we proclaim. That's the message we wanna, wanna continue to, to point others to. So several things here, just quickly. Notice two things with regard to this message. First of all, we have a firm confidence. Back to verse 18, all this is from God. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Who reconciles sinners? God does. We have a message, a, a, a ministry, a stewardship, but God is the reconciler. He reconciles sinners through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he restates it a different way in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God's the reconciler. God is the one who makes his appeal through the gospel, through us as ministers of reconciliation. Again, we've been entrusted with the message and God is the reconciler. The ministry of reconciliation is one we steward by getting out the message, but we don't do the reconciling between God and sinners. God does that work, but he does it through us. You see the stewardship. Friends, this is why we can be confident in our evangelistic efforts, no matter how, quote, successful or, quote, unsuccessful it may seem. God is always successful. God will do the reconciling work of grace in the heart of sinners. You can rest assured he will save sinners. But he does it through the message of reconciliation. That's where he calls us to join him in this work by getting this message out. And as we get the message out, God works through that message applied by the Holy Spirit to bring about sinners to himself. Therefore, we can have confidence. God does the heavy lifting. We just get the message out. We're not responsible for how people hear it, receive it, obey it. We're to tell them the message and call them and to love them, to embrace it, knowing that Lord will do his work. So we have this firm confidence and then we a focused content. Again, you see in verse 21, this, this message is a message of reconciliation found in the complete work of Jesus. If we are not preaching Jesus, we are not preaching the message of reconciliation. If we are not preaching salvation, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, we are not preaching the message of reconciliation. If we are telling people, oh, if you just kind of do enough good to outweigh your bad, you'll be okay. That's not the message of reconciliation. That's the message of condemnation. 
because no one will ever be good enough for a right and holy God. Only through Christ, the sin bearer, the reconciler, can we have hope, can we have salvation. So friend, if you're here today and you're not trusting in that, in that work of reconciliation, that message is for you. If you would say, well, I've not really trusted in Christ, I've been trusting in my own attempts to make myself right with God, or I've been, I don't even, I don't even know what I've been doing. Friend, listen, we are all sinners, and we all deserve God's judgment, and the way that he reconciles us to himself is through sending his son into the world. A man who lived a life of righteousness and yet died on a cross to bear our sin and our penalty. If you would simply believe in him and trust him, to pardon you of your sin because of what he's done, you will be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. And friends, as a church, we have this message to tell others. Church, we say it clearly in our mission statement. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is a church that exists to exalt the Lord, equip believers, and engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Question is simple, how's it going on that third one? We exalt, we do our fair share of equipping, but how are we doing with the engaging part? What does your gospel engagement look like? From being encouraged, you've got a lot of teammates here to help you to support you, to encourage you. Let's continue to grow both in our passion for the lost in this community and in our intentionality in being a gospel witness. In just a second, we're gonna stand and sing, O Church, Arise, and the second verse reminds us of our call in that simple phrase in that second verse where it says, our call to war, to love the captive soul. That's what we've been called to do, church to love captive souls and to win them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, evangelism is warfare. The Bible tells us that the God of this world, little g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. And as such, the enemy will not take lightly to any effort of proclaiming this message of reconciliation so that we can see these captives released by the grace of God. But as we go, friends, as we engage, we do so with confidence that this is our mission, a mission empowered by God, given by God, and a mission that will be accomplished by our saving and faithful God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for this reminder this morning, a reminder of the stewardship that you've given us as ambassadors in this world, as ministers of reconciliation, as witnesses to the truth and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer right now, Father, is that if there's anyone in this room that has yet to believe in that message that we speak of today, God, that you would stir their hearts and call them to yourself even now, that they would repent of their sin, and that they would put their faith and hope in Jesus as their Savior. Father, also as we think through this, this calling that we have as ambassadors, as witnesses, as a church, God, would you help strengthen our evangelistic desire? 
Father, maybe where we've been weak in this area, where we've been negligent in this area, Lord, would you help us not feel guilt over that? Simply, Lord, to confess our negligence and to, to ask for your wisdom and clarity and help. Maybe help from other believers. Father, would you just give this church and give us individually even just a sense, a renewed sense of, of desire to, to, to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Or that we would see this ministry of reconciliation. That we would be rightly motivated in this work. And that we would be clear on the message, knowing we've been entrusted with this ministry. So God, we ask for your help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.